0: Okay, this is the cream of the crop okay, Yeah Audio podcast Macho man Yeah Randy Savage
1: <laughs> Okay, can you talk normal? Can I talk normal? Yeah This is Randy Macho Man Savage Hey
0: everyone, welcome to Tableside Mashed Potatoes, a digital marketing podcast I'm Derek and I'm here with Scott and Peter
1: Thank you Hey <laughs> How
0: are you guys doing?
1: <laughs> Good <laughs>
0: what you guys do this weekend?
2: I had nothing. Just watch the snow. Just I don't watched. remember. You know, I watched an weekend. Indian
0: movie. An I Indian went to a Bollywood movie. movie. Oh, oh. Yeah. So Naz, my my partner, uh, her and her parents are, well, they're Ismaili. Um, and they wanted me to come see a Bollywood movie. <laughs> and initially I was pretty reluctant to do so. Uh, but then Naz went, "Yeah, it's called Street Fighter." I'm like, "Whoa, what?" Like the video game? No, it's, oh. it was supposed to be like a martial arts movie. So I'm here, I am. We're driving up to the movie theater in Country Hills in Calgary, and then <laughs> I'm halfway there, and I keep talking about, "Oh man, I can't wait for this, and I'm so excited. I love foreign films, especially if they're martial arts movies." And then she's like, "Oh, oh, oh, my bad. It's Street Dancer." <laughs> oh, I was choked. I was choked. And Bollywood movies are very long. Was it
1: dancing and fighting? There's dancing in every Bollywood movie, isn't it? Isn't that the thing at the end where it's, yeah. That's
0: why there was like extra dancing. Double, double the amount of dance. Double dance. Double dance, yeah. Um, And it was a three hour movie. Three hours of dancing.
1: Wow. Wow. I haven't been able to sit through The Irishman yet because it's three hours. Yeah. And And that's like an English speaking movie that I can understand.
2: Yeah. Did you guys ever play Street Fighter back in the day? Yes.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. That Uh, was my game.
2: I was an MK guy. MK, Mortal Kombat. Yeah, Mortal okay,
1: Kombat. no, yeah, because I think Street Fighter predated Mortal Kombat by like a year or two. Yeah, but I sunk a fuckload of quarters in that game. my <laughs> like, yeah, god, when Mortal Kombat came out on
0: Sega Genesis, it came out without the blood because oh. Mortal Kombat. Oh, like, yeah, right. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still remember, remember that too. And I remember my dad and I going to the uh, the video game store, and you had to buy the code for it, ten dollars. And all <laughs> he did, all he did, was write it on a piece of paper: A B A C A B B Abacab. I'll never forget it. And as soon as we got it, oh man, so bloody! Oh, <laughs> it was amazing. I was wow. like six. My dad's like, we need the code. You got to <laughs> see all the gore and violence. Yeah,
2: I think that game's gone up exponentially in violence since. <laughs> yeah, I have still the new Mortal them?
0: Kombat. Oh, and we bought it specifically because I saw a video on YouTube that showed all the finishing moves. Yeah, I still don't know how to do any of the finishing moves, mm-hmm. but even without them, it's super. It's like, super violent. Like what's one? There's one where so all you have to do is press the R1 button and it grabs the your opponent. And then who was it? It was Katana. Katana. And she's the one with the like the knife fans. They're fans, but they're made of blades. And what she does is she'll like chop you up, throw you up in the air, hit you with like a heel on her boots. That's like also made out of a blade. (laughs) And it goes in slow motion close up of your brain getting stabbed with (laughs) the boot. And then she kind of like stomps your head into the ground and then like punches you. And it only takes a little bit of your life off. This seems over the top. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's just, that's not
2: even a finishing move. That's just like
0: in the game. No, that's just just like a regular move. So imagine what the finishing moves would look like. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Is that rated E for everyone? (laughs) You can get that without blood. It's just knives going into heads. Yeah. You need the
0: code this time to cancel (laughs) the blood out. Parental advisory code. (laughs) Do you think that's poor usability? Hey, what a great segue. (laughs) So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about website usability. Uh, Thanks,
1: Scott, for leading this conversation. Hey, you know, we're professionals. We know how to do this.
0: Yeah, and you're the product design director here at ZGM. Mm -hmm. So this is the perfect topic for you to talk about.
1: Well, strap in, folks, (laughs) because website usability is a sexy topic. (laughs)
0: Okay. okay, well, what do we. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, the most important question to ask here is what do you mean, website usability? Uh,
1: usability is just exactly what it sounds like. It's the, the ability to be able to perform certain tasks on a website or app easily without overloading a user um, by making them have to think or learn a particular system. Um, it should be fairly obvious and straightforward. What it is they're there to do, and facilitating that in the the most efficient way possible. I remember so that book,
2: famous book. Don't make me think. Yeah, that's like such a great mantra for usability. It really
1: is. Who wrote that?
0: Uh, Steve Krug. Okay, I'll put that in the uh, podcast notes.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's a great book. It's really it's it came out. Ooh, I want to say like. Early 2000s, first edition of it. It got revised yeah, uh, to kind of catch up.
2: Yeah. But honestly, like the thing I got out of that book was literally the title. Like The book yeah. was good, but the title says it all, right? Mm-hmm. So it's amazing.
1: That's- yeah, th- there's a quote. I don't think it's from that book, but it's always sort of stuck with me that... Um, I'm going to butcher it, but the user's first and most natural instinct on a website is to flee. Right? Uh- Meaning if they're not understanding what exactly they need to do, they're gonna leave. You mentioned user experience, did you? (laughs) I did
0: not, but we can
1: (laughs) I think sometimes when people think um, UX, they think usability, right? Um, So usability can get, the term can get conflated with a couple other different things like um, user experience. Um, which, you know, usability is is part of user experience, but it's one of sort of seven factors um, that, you know, define a user experience. So is something useful? Is it usable? Is it findable? Is it credible? Is it desirable? Is it accessible? Is it valuable? Um, and if it's all those things, generally speaking, it's going to be a really good user experience. Um, but accessibility is another thing that I think gets a little bit confused with usability. So, Accessibility is the um, designing of something for people who may have um, different disabilities, maybe colorblind, um, maybe completely blind, maybe um, have some other sort of uh, condition that uh, renders a lot of websites out there very challenging for them to use if accessibility isn't considered in the design. Usability is a little bit more about trying to facilitate the most efficient path for somebody to accomplish what they came here to do. It feels
2: like people are using the word UX in their titles quite a lot. Is that true? Yeah, probably. Do you think it's is warranted for in the most cases, or do you think people just have a misunderstanding of what UX actually is?
1: I think, um, I think UX is a hard thing to try to define once you really get into it a little bit. I think, generally speaking, what most people mean when they say user experience is user interface so ux ui that conflation yeah um well I just seemed overnight suddenly all the designers
2: i knew were suddenly ux designers well it's because nobody wants
1: to be a web designer anymore because it's not like you Dang know gross. 2009 right <laughs> so i think partially it's an evolution of the term um but it's also i think an expansion of the role i think Anybody who's working in the digital space needs to be thinking about all of these things that come with user experience, usability, um, you know, accessibility, this type of stuff. Um, it's not all just about the visual design, although that's an extremely important part of user experience. Uh, it's it's just a broader tent, no, a larger tent, I guess, Uh, than it used to be.
2: From a UX point of view, is there anything in life, and this can be anything, it doesn't have to be websites, but is there Mm -hmm. any any kind of interfaces that drive you crazy? I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Right. I have, uh, when I go get gas to fill up the car, the the nozzle, there's usually a little lever that kind of keeps it so that I can go back in the car and sit in the warm car while it's filling up with gas. When that little thing's not there, Man, it's just—it's the worst, especially living in Canada. When you're minus thirty, you gotta stand there and hold this nozzle. When you know that there's other ones that have that little clip,
0: yeah, Yeah. because you've been expecting a certain experience. And you're expecting that experience to happen all the time. Yeah. yeah. I go to a different gas station and I will not go back to that one <laughs> until they yeah, fix that little
2: lever. <laughs> yeah. Is that one tiny piece of metal makes or break a gas station? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny because we, we mentioned uh, Don't Make Me Think. There's another book um, by Don Norman, who's sort of the, the grandfather of user experience. He actually coined the term. I think in 1993 when he was working for Apple, um, he wrote a book called, um, the design of everyday things. Oh yeah. Which is another sort of, you know, staple, um, that every UX designer or product designer should, should read. And it's not actually about digital products. It's about, you know, uncovering usability issues in, in, Everything right yeah. everyday things and it could be doorknobs or you know stove consoles or, or whatever but we do tend to find these things that we just accept in everyday life is like well this is the thing that I do in order to perform this action and when somebody comes up with something different or better it's like you can't go back you know it's it's uh, all of a sudden you're like why hadn't somebody thought of that? Yeah, Earlier.
2: Yeah, I remember uh, it was a good talk. I remember listening to where it was it was giving airports as an example. It was like for the most part, the user experience you would think is getting on the plane and buying your ticket and riding the plane and having the in-flight meal. But when you look at the entire experience from start to finish, it's the cab ride there. It's the washroom at the airport. It's uh, planning the trip ahead of time. It's everything. Whether they control it or not, it's all part of the user experience.
1: Yeah. Like that sort of broader service delivery is sometimes referred to as CX or uh, customer experience. User experience, although, you know, again, we get into semantics when we start to try to define these terms a little bit too rigidly. Um, user experience, for better or worse, has come to sort of um, typify something that you're doing on a screen somewhere, right? Um, And again, usability is a part of that, but there's a a number of other factors that need to be looked at. Um, Because Just because somebody can use something extremely easily doesn't mean anything if it's not actually solving the thing they need it to, right? So you can have, you know, whatever example about something that is just brain dead simple to use. I can get from point A to point B, as quickly as anything. But if I don't actually need to move from point A to point B, that's not the problem I'm hiring this thing to do for me, then it doesn't matter how usable it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's still not going to provide any value to me. So that's where, you know, we get into knowing your users and your customers and doing research to understand what the actual underlying need of, you know, a user base might be. Mm -hmm. So it's,
0: it's interesting because there are products out there. that don't necessarily have the best usability, but they still do the job. They still get you from point A to point B, or they still help you achieve that end goal that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, can you name any examples? I can
2: help you uh, with that. Uh, anything to do with government mm-hmm. or anything to do with education. It's kind mm-hmm. of a blanket statement. Yeah. But we have, so we have kids and we have to go on to this, mm-hmm. uh, the education site to kind of plan and book teacher meetings and all. It is universally hated, but we all have to do it. And it's the only way to, to do it. And I think that's like government or anything where is, there's been a lot of kind of slow moving change where there's a lot of bureaucracy around it, like financial institutions or whatnot. I think you find a lot of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, the parent website where you need to go in and log in and that's where you pay your fees oh, and so check, awful. check the, the lunch supervision and go get uh, report cards. Absolutely terrible. Sorry for whoever designed that, if they're listening, but they're not. No, why would they? <laughs> they obviously don't care. Yeah, no, <laughs> but but um, you know, when you do say when when we talk about government, I think yeah, in large part, they're that they're pretty guilty of that, and I think it's it's for the most part because you've got a very uh, large and diverse user base, right? Um, you've got probably dozens of stakeholders, and then yeah, you, you've just got so many different self-service areas that you need to cover, it becomes sort of, hey, get in here, do whatever you need to do, figure it out. We can't hold everybody's hand, right? Yeah. So it's very, very challenging in government um, or public sector type digital interfaces and websites to be able to try to deliver a really, really high quality user experience. That being said, gov.uk is some sort of held In high regard for their attention to this, and I think it was 2016, they actually won website of the year because they have, you know, an entire UX team devoted to making sure You know, their user experience is top notch and it's not a sexy website. It's very, very plain. It's very boring, but it's generally regarded as being very usable and very efficient for people who need to come to a government website to apply for a license or whatever it is. I guess the more
0: complex the product is. The more usable it needs to be. A hundred percent. Well, like,
2: if- I think those were the big wins I remember is like we're talking about airlines again. There's an airline uh, site. I remember that kept coming up in UX mm-hmm. as citing as like it's such a complicated process to book a seat um, that it becomes this kind of universal challenge for UX developers to to keep trying to kind of crack this nut. And I don't think anyone's really done it.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, it was working co in, I want to say 2014 was the first. uh, So they, they um, redesigned the online airfare booking your seat um, for Virgin American airlines. And this new design won every word under the sun. And again, was heralded for, for an amazing user experience because they were dealing with a lot of sort of legacy, um, you know, this sort of, Software called uh, Sabre, I believe, that just underlines every airfare transaction. Everything uses this system. It's actually a very, very complex system. Like every seat has a price that is in flux all the time. And so this system manages all that. And so they built a layer on top of that to basically take something that was really um, clunky and difficult to use and build a really beautiful usable, seamless experience on top of it. Sometimes I think you find yourself in environments where the technologies
2: you're at least you're told is really inflexible, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got a a CMS that just is unwieldy, or you have some framework that, you know, maybe it's for non-for profits that's been there for 20 years and no one's willing to change it. And then you're expected to go in and Like you've said before, sprinkle some UX dust on it and fix everything. Right. Uh, You know, what do you do in those situations or can you do anything?
1: So we talk about UX and design maturity in different organizations sometimes. So um, I think if you're working for an agency, it's a different environment and you're going to have different challenges than if you're a UX designer or a usability expert uh, working for a airline right? Tasked with trying to create a better experience or working in government tasked with trying to to make a more usable self-service website. And there are, you know, restrictions. There's, there's going to be boundaries. There's going to be things that you're not going to be able to touch and knowing those upfront can be good. But at the same time, if everybody just said, well, we're not allowed to touch this, then there would never be any innovation happening, right? Like, you know the boundaries. You know which ones you can challenge, and sometimes there's some really creative, or um, you know, strategic or technical type of things that you can suggest and say, "Well, we may not be able to do this perfectly mapped out experience that we know would just you know improve things, but maybe we can do this." And that's not actually something that you guys may be considered. So let's let's have a conversation about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you guys both work on digital products all the time. So I don't see them a lot, but what are some of the issues that you guys see in terms of usability on some of the websites that, you know, you might have audited or mm-hmm. or websites that you're going to rebuild?
1: For me, what I come across a lot is it's not evident or clear sometimes what the intended goals or actions or purpose of something Is right an entire website, and you know, Peter and I have heard a number of times like, "Well, we we want a new website," and you know, we usually will say, "Okay, well let's let's talk about that. What what what's not working or why?" Sometimes there's some some good business drivers that you know are prompting that discussion, but a lot of times it's like, "Well, we just don't like our website." So it's it's you know you start to dig a little bit in there, and you go, "Well, there's no real clear uh, action." At least from a user's perspective, that we're hoping somebody's going to take. So, you know, for, I'm a user. I come to a website. I go from top to bottom. I scroll. I look for things that are going to trigger my next move. Right? It's called information scent. Um, and and so I'm going to be looking for things that are going to try to push me further down this journey. But if it's not designed with that intent, then most of the time it's just a free-for-all and you're just looking around and everything just seems like it's just there with no real purpose for it. That whole, like, what is the intent on
2: every page? Is there a call to action? Is Is it a clear call to action? Are you actually saying what you want it to do? Quite often, I think we get too clever or we assume too much. There's this great saying... That's from Men in Black. Is What is it? Uh, a person is smart. People are stupid. I, think.
1: I, I want you to say that in your best Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> accent. <laughs> no, I, can,
2: I have no idea how he I'll be
1: it. Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> <Think>. <laughs> <laughs> he,
2: just, he just sounds like an old crotchety guy. I guess that's probably... Yeah. Um, I found a button it's today. So, again, it's funny because it seems obvious that things look like buttons and, and feel like buttons. But are they really? Uh, we, uh, today, I found it was white text in a, in a red box right with perfect corners mm-hmm. and that could look like a button but it also could look like a callout So Mm -hmm. I think, again, we're just making too many assumptions as far as like, is this actually look clickable? Because when you remove the underline and you make things a little bolder and you do like you get a little clever, Mm -hmm. you know, what does it actually do? And again, the the words itself didn't really explain what you're going to click on. So Mm -hmm. there's this layer of common sense that just you kind of run through everything with. It's just like what are you asking me to do and why is it worth it for me?
1: Well, and the ironic thing is, is that uh, the longer you do this, the longer you work in this industry or design websites or design digital products, the further away you get from that sort of, you know, common experience that people have. So what you're pointing out is like, you know, this common sense that you would assume people just like, well, this is a button. Obviously, it's a button. It's not obvious that it's a button. It's obvious to you that it's a button, A, probably because you designed it, but B, because we've been doing it for so long that these interaction patterns just become ingrained in us and we make so many assumptions about, you know, well, obviously people are going to get this because I get this. But then you, you do some usability testing and you watch people trip through this interface and you go, Ugh, Yikes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Usability
0: testing is actually uh, interesting to talk about. Too. No, like, it's not. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's not.
1: It's terrible. But how it's do you, important. Test? How it's do you important. test usability? Uh, OK, so there's there's uh, I mean, the, the sort of gold standard would be a usability test. Right. Um, there's a number of different ways that you can run a usability test, but it all is basically writing um, a, a, a number of scenarios that would approximate what you would want a user to be able to do in a particular flow or on a website or on an app. Um, and then you would, you, you know, you, you may construct a scenario, um, say, okay, well, say you're this person and you're looking to do X, Y, and Z. And then you, you write out a task scenario that has a handful of, of tasks and then you have them try to perform those tasks. Uh,
2: really gravitate to some of these tools like uh, heat mapping, Hotjar. Yeah, is a good example where you're you're kind of seeing the hot spots. You're also seeing scroll depth and whatnot. But they also have these live recordings where you can just dive in and watch someone moving around the the site. What's nice about it, you haven't asked them to do anything. You haven't told them anything. You're just eavesdropping essentially on what they're doing. So it's a very natural way to gather information. It's and really creepy feeling as well when you're watching. It's funny because it'll record about 10,000 sessions. So yeah. you're not really going to go through them all. You have to filter them fairly heavily. But it's interesting to see, okay, out of the ones that came and left within 10 seconds, what did they do? Like what stopped them from – Also, the ones that stayed for 10 minutes, what were they doing, right? So it's really an interesting insight into things. Um, It's not the end all, but it's certainly a nice layer to add on to things. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was going to ask you about, um, we talked about a little bit, is demystifying a little bit about user testing. Like, it can get pretty lean and mean Mm -hmm. if you want it to, right? As you're developing, you want quick
1: quick kind of reactions and quick gut checks. How do you do that? Yeah, I think it just depends on what stage of the project you're in, right? So if you're in the sort of initial ideation phase, maybe you're doing some some low fidelity prototypes. It really doesn't have to be all that scientific or disciplined, right? You're just trying to, you know, see if some of the ideas that you're coming up with have any weight at all, or if they're just going to be completely unusable for people, Mm. if you're sketching stuff on paper, you can probably just even just show it to a couple of people that are sitting around you. go like, here, what do you think of this? Or, you know, what would you tap on here? Or show them two versions and say like, which one feels right to you, right? It's, it's not scientific, but it doesn't have to be. It's not statistically valid testing. Um, The further along you get in you know, design and development, the more rigorous I think you want to get with some of this usability testing stuff. And, you know, it depends on, again, your environment. If you are testing software for uh, SpaceX rocket launches, you probably want to make sure that the software or the interface is super usable. But You know, we're not really doing that, right? For the most part, we're working um, in in a a commercial space. I think people hear research, they hear tests, and they think they're going to get some sort of like scientific, statistically valid reporting, hundred-page PDFs of of everything that we found, and and they're not really meant for that, for the most part. It's it's to try to come up and recognize patterns, right? So if You've only tested it with five people and one or two people had a problem doing something that doesn't mean 20 or 40 percent of the population is going to use this thing is going to have the same problem. Yeah. Like sometimes are you just like the buttons right there? Just push the fucking button while oh you're my watching God. The user testing. Yes. You're pulling your hair out. Going like, how can I make that any clearer? Yeah, come on. What do I come have to on. do? But, but again, you know, everything we, when we, when we put it in front of somebody, we have to make clear, Hey, we're, we're testing the interface. We're not testing you. You're not doing anything wrong. Right. Um, You're using this to the best of your ability. It's humbling watching people struggle through something you've designed
2: and like missing the thing that you think is obvious. Uh, Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's frustrating. But but bias is a, a huge thing. And, you know, I think it can be really tempting to run usability testing as a way to simply validate the decisions that were made. Right. So I have a bias. I know this is good work. I know this is good design. Um, Let me just run this test with five people so that I can prove that it's a good design. (laughs) And it's hard to separate yourself from that because your instinct is exactly that is to just go, okay, let me prove that I'm on the right track here.
0: But, you know, we were talking about mortal combat, Uh, earlier, and you mentioned earlier off the mic, Mm. about uh, usability in terms of video games. Can you touch on that?
1: (laughs) I think I said uh, a video game that required three control pads would be poor usability because... For the time being, anyways, we only have two hands.
0: (laughs) For the time being. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you, guys, because, you know, I I don't have any, uh, I guess, digital product experience aside from some project management I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. But um, you guys pretty much brought to light uh, a, a lot of things that I would be thinking of if I was developing or designing a website for Tableside mashed potatoes. My company. Can I give you some strategic advice on that? Uh, I'll talk to Peter about it because he's more into the potato thing than you are.
1: <laughs> Still don't understand your reluctance here. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing name. Actually, you know what? I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that everybody loves the name. I know. Yeah, it yeah. Blows yeah. My mind.
0: Derek. So the, the one name I hate out of all the names that we yeah. had.
1: Yeah,
2: but now you love.
0: I still think we should call it Zodcast. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for listening to Zodcast. This is Derek, <laughs> Peter, and Scott. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.